I'm Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, and politicians, to WFIU audiences. Our guest today is Sir Nigel Scheinwald, the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States. Sir Nigel, welcome. Thank you very much. I should mention as we start that Sir Nigel has had a distinguished diplomatic career, ranging from posts in Moscow, an early appointment to Washington, a very important appointment to number 10 Downing Street during the prime ministership of Tony Blair when he was the equivalence of our national security advisor for Britain and where he dealt with some very, very significant crises. And then on to Washington, D.C., after serving in Brussels as ambassador to the European Union. I think I've covered most of the ground. So That's I'd... it. That sounds like a pretty fair summary. And may we start with more of a sort of personal background, because I think it would be good for people to know. You attended Oxford. I did. Uh, Balliol College. Balliol College in the 1970s. So just after the main period of student rebellion of the 1960s, um, but in the aftermath of that. So Balliol was still quite a, quite a radical place um, when, I was, uh, when I was there, a place where, where politics was practiced um, and it was a very interesting place to be and a very international place with a, uh, with a strong uh, American contingent and contingent from uh, around, the, around the Commonwealth, around the British Commonwealth. And a couple of the people that I uh, met there uh, I still keep in touch with E.J. Dion, the, uh, the well-known American journalist who works for the uh, uh, Brookings Institution and the Washington Post and widely syndicated. He was a, a scholar there in, uh, in, in politics. Uh, and Kim Beasley, who went on oh, to yes. become the leader of the Australian Labour Party and their defense minister. He's now their ambassador in Washington, so I see him quite a bit. Uh, but he went on to a very distinguished career. So those networks last a long time. I also think it's interesting that you did a degree in classics which included Latin, Greek, and ancient philosophy. And ancient yeah, history, history, which was probably the bit yeah. that I enjoyed, I enjoyed the most. I mean, it, sounds, it sounds like a very, very minority subject today. Uh, in those days, it, it wasn't anything like as popular as history or English or political science, but it was a more mainstream uh, academic pursuit than, um, than, than today. And I don't regret it in the sense that um, it was a very strong academic and intellectual discipline, and the study of history um, is very, very useful for what I've ended up doing uh, since, which is pursuing uh, diplomacy and international politics. But um, uh, I probably would have enjoyed more doing a modern, a modern history course. But, uh, um, but it was a, a very good training for analysis, sifting evidence, um, for working out a rational way forward, which is what we always try to do. Whether we succeed or not is another matter. Balliol gave you a fellowship to come to the United States when you finished your first degree. It was did. Was that the first trip? It was my first ever visit. It was in 1976. I just finished my, uh, my course. And a, uh, an American, um, a wealthy American who had been at the college some years before, um, endowed this bursary, which was provided to about seven or eight people a year um, to travel around uh, the United States in the, in the summer. And you were given a sum of money and uh, had a network of 
uh, of people, Americans who'd been at the college uh, around the country who looked after you, and then you were on your own, and you had to write a little report at the end of it. But it was a marvellous introduction for me, and I spent about six weeks literally um, traversing the country, and then immediately I got back, started working in our, in our foreign office, working for our diplomatic service, where I'd um, gained entry during my last year at university. You came into the Foreign Service and then went to Moscow, I think, and other appointments. And eventually, as I said, you moved to 10 Downing Street. I'd like to focus on a few of the interesting moments in 10 Downing Street. Sure. Uh, Some of them have great relevance even today. I consider the uh, wonderful breakthrough with Libya, for example, because Libya was a pariah nation and you played a pivotal role. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about um, what happened the breakthrough with uh, Gaddafi, uh, maybe a little bit about how you proceeded in terms of negotiation with the Libyans. Yes. Well, it was, um, it was an important period. Um, it, it all took place, um, the period we're talking about, the, the critical moments were in uh, 2003. And I suppose um, before I'd actually started in number 10, um, there had already been intimations from um, from Colonel Gaddafi and from the Libyan uh, authorities, that they were thinking again about their um, weapons of mass destruction, whether they wanted to keep on with their program. And that was very, very welcome uh, news for us because, um, you know, if countries voluntarily took that, uh, took that mm-hmm. step, um, that was very much in the policy line that we were, um, that we were working on. Having um, uh, gone into the conflict with Iraq over WMD, uh, it was very important that other countries um, should, uh, uh, should respond um, in, that, in that way. Um, and there was a tricky negotiation which uh, different parts of our government um, were involved with, uh, our people on the spot, our intelligence services, a number of others uh, were involved. But it was very much directed by President Bush on the, uh, on the United States side, his national security advisor, uh, Condoleezza Rice, and then on the British side by Prime Minister Tony Blair, um, and, and, I, and I was centrally involved as well. And we kept in very, very close touch with the, uh, with the White House uh, throughout, with our Foreign Office, State Department people, and with our intelligence people. And there was a, a complicated negotiation with um, the Libyan uh, authorities about this, about how actually to to get to the point where they would make that um, important statement of renouncing uh, their weapons of mass destruction and then what the program would be of um, taking them away and, uh, and uh, neutralizing them. And um, there were many, potentially many, many a slip between cup and lip uh, along, along that route because it wasn't a straightforward uh, negotiation at all. The promise on our side was if he did this, then we would welcome Libya back into the mainstream of the international community. Um, And that's what we did. And very soon after, um, Colonel Gaddafi made his historic statement in December of 2003. Tony Blair visited visited Libya. I think it was in March of uh, the following year, really to put the final stamp on that, to show that uh, to show in a very visible way um, that we recognized that they had made a big strategic move and that we wanted them back, that trade relations, that cultural relations, the political closeness between our countries could start slowly to uh, warm up again after a period in which, as you said, um, they, had been treat- they had been regarded as a, an international pariah because of their involvement in, uh, in terrorism and because of their very aggressive stance. What are the long-term implications now as we look back It's been several years. Um, Has it been worth it? I'm sure it has. But what what are the implications 
of reaching this accord with Libya now as we look back and where we are going in the future? I'm sure for Libya, you know, many of the rewards um, uh, are still to come. I mean, I think that these things take time. But I certainly think and hope that re-entering the, nor- the normal trade and economic relationships with Britain, with the rest of Europe, with the United States uh, will help them. They were isolated before. Um, and, and over time, that will help the process of economic change and reform uh, in that country and make them more, more competitive and able to, to work with us in the 21st century uh, world. So I think economically, that will undoubtedly be of uh, advantage to them. But I think there's a wider message. I mean, it, it shows and we're, we're still dealing with Iran. We're still dealing with North Korea. It shows that it's perfectly possible for a country to reach the right conclusion, the safer conclusion for itself and for the world community without there having a, a need to be a confrontation or a conflict or anything else. And that is a message which uh, is important for uh, those in authority uh, in Tehran, in Pyongyang and elsewhere to understand. This doesn't have to go to the wire. It doesn't have to go to the brink. It is possible to reassess your national needs and your national priorities and to do so in a way which you get a win-win outcome. I think we have a tendency to think of these intransigent political situations as chronic at times. I never would have imagined that South Africa would move towards the kind of society that exists and the political system that exists today. And I think this is an example where we make assumptions and indeed they are not as chronic as we consider. No, and I think one of the tasks for for politicians and for the people like me advising them is, is trying to spot that moment where you can see a pivot uh, in national affairs or in world affairs and you've got to make a decision as to uh, whether you, you take a risk and, uh, and, go, uh, and go with it because what we were doing, there, were, there, were, uh, there would have been a lot of people around saying um, that Colonel Gaddafi and Libya are never going to change. Uh, they don't mean it. Uh, this is all a trick or, or that there are so many other countervailing factors but ultimately you've got to work out where your strategic uh, interests uh, actually and long-term interests actually lie. So I, I agree with you. And change is possible uh, in international relations, change for, for, for the better and I'm afraid also change, change for the worse. And there are situations around the world which we've seen you know, get worse over the, um, over, the, over the years. Which leads into Iran. Yes. And you played a, a really important role um, in an incident which took place in 2007 when um, 15 British sailors and marines were detained patrolling in the Persian Gulf area and they were detained by Iran. And that could have been an explosive situation. It was a logjam and again, you were at 10 Downing Street and you played a really important role in assisting with the resolution of this problem. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about it. Well, I do stress I was assisting in the uh, resolution, one of of many who were involved. I mean, we were... Um, you know, we were shocked and we were very concerned when our sailors were taken in that way, needlessly and uh, without without justification by the uh, Iranian uh, authorities. And it took us a long time to really um, get through to them because they were in, as it happened, they were in the middle of a, a long public holiday, their, their New Year uh, holiday, which always takes place in the spring of the uh, of the year. And for a long period, there was radio silence. But we, we did really two things. The first, first of all, we ensured that um, all our partners and contacts um, uh, around the world, not just in the region but around the world, 
were expressing their views directly to the um, to the Iranian government to make clear that what they'd done um, wasn't just uh, a matter of concern for the UK government, but as a matter of broader concern, um, not only um, to the West, but to um, but to uh, other Middle Eastern countries, to the uh, Islamic world, uh, and so on. And a lot of countries did do that. Some of them did it publicly, some of them did it privately. So there was a chorus of disapproval, which the uh, Iranian uh, system would have been would have been aware of. And the other thing that we did was we um, tried to establish some bilateral tracks to the uh, Iranian uh, regime. We didn't have uh, a, a huge number of those. We have an embassy in uh, Tehran, uh, but our relationship has never been uh, um, an entirely straightforward or particularly full one. But we used all the connections that we could in Tehran. Um, and I also, from my vantage point in 10 Downing Street as the British National Security Advisor, I also made contact during that period with um, uh, the then my then opposite number, who was uh, Ali Larijani, uh, now the uh, now the Speaker of the Iranian Parliament, then their National Security Advisor, and I had a couple of useful and positive conversations with him, which I think probably did help to calm the atmosphere between the two countries in the immediate run-up to the decision by the Iranians to release them. I think it was one of a number of factors, if I'm honest about it, um, but it was definitely useful to establish that contact. And we, we hadn't met before that point, um, but we did meet afterwards and, um, and, and began um, uh, what I must say was a dialogue, but a difficult dialogue on the range of issues which concern uh, the West and Iran, on nuclear policy, uh, on Iran's role in the region, in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in Palestine and Lebanon, and the, the broader issues of the future relationship between Iran and the, and the rest of the world. So that was a, um, a tricky period and a tricky, and a tricky moment, which, which thankfully was resolved uh, peacefully and successfully. Um, this, this leads to another discussion, I think, that would be important, the contemporary situation in Iran. And I read a piece of yours in Politico, a current piece, which draws a valid distinction between Iran and North Korea. I think that's a very important point that we, we need to take into account, especially as we look at the whole question of the nuclear situation that's being uh, in the news and which is a major point at, of, of dispute at the moment. Perhaps you'd like to expand a bit on this distinction between North Korea well, I'll, I'll say a bit about um, a, a bit about uh, Iran. I mean, it is a very significant uh, threat. It is um, uh, a worry for us, not just in relation to the nuclear dossier, but the way in which Iran has um, has encouraged extremism and violence uh, in its uh, in its region. Um, and there are some differences with um, with North Korea. For a start, um, uh, Iran is a much more open society than North Korea. It's not democratic. Uh, or open in our sense, but it has a, um, a pretty uh, wide uh, media um, market, uh, a wide range of points of view are put across. And unlike Korea, it's not shut off from the world. It's connected to the rest of the world through the Iranian diaspora and a number of other, uh, a number of other links. Also, it's the regime in uh, Iran, interestingly, uh, is quite keen to present themselves uh, as part of the international community and observing international norms. Now, we disagree with them about that. We think what they're doing is uh, is risky and abhorrent. But they try to present themselves as having uh, legitimacy and uh, international good practice on their side. 
Uh, and in a way, what they've been doing in recent weeks by sending their representatives all around the world to, to put over their side of the case as we are trying to get sanctions discussed again in the UN Security Council shows how much they care. Uh, we have to do what we can also to influence world opinion on the uh, on the issue and be aware of uh, Iranian lobbying. But the fact they've sent all those emissaries out and invited so many other countries to visit them in Tehran shows that they would prefer that there aren't any sanctions. Uh, and they don't get that international pressure um, and uh, international opprobrium um, put on them. So – you're dealing with, a, with a, a very complicated country with a complex political uh, system where there is something to play for. And uh, what we've been saying with Iran is we have to increase the pressure now. They've rejected the offer that was put out, the open hand that was extended by President Obama last year, um, which we Europeans strongly supported. Uh, the Iranians have rejected that. They've rejected a, a set of imaginative proposals from the International Atomic Energy Authority um, for, um, for nuclear fuel. And they look set on trying to proceed with their uh, nuclear uh, program. But we've got to try and increase the pressure, uh, increase the public diplomacy, increase the uh, regional effort around Iran from the, uh, from the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia and others, uh, and see whether we can create some sort of breakthrough within the, within the Iranian system. And we believe that although there's a great deal of uh, concern about the Iranian nuclear program, we know they've had technical difficulties uh, and we believe there is a bit of time yet for that diplomacy, political pressure um, to, have, uh, to have an effect. I think also uh, a point you made in Politico, which I'm intrigued by, is that there are many power centers in Iran – and we don't fully realize the differentiation between the different groups in that society and the demands that are being made by young people even at this point who represent uh, almost a pro-Western stance in terms of their dress, in terms of their interest in popular culture and in terms of communication through um, uh, handheld phones and all kinds of other means of communication. No, absolutely. You're not, you're not dealing with the Soviet Union of the 1940s. You're dealing with a very young population. Uh, they're very uh, connected, as you, as you said, Patrick. They uh, um, Certainly the uh, middle class, young uh, uh, Iranians in cities, if you talk about that group, yeah. um, they're, you know, they're using the internet, they're using all the, the social connectivity that um, young people everywhere else in the world are using. Um, the role of Twitter, the role of the uh, internet sites during the events of last June in the aftermath of their election were very, very significant. Um, the BBC's uh, Farsi um, language service, our TV service, our um, Iranian um, uh, internet site, those were all heavily accessed and used by uh, the Iranian reform movement in June of last year. So I think you're dealing with, uh, as you say, a complex uh, set of power, different power centers in, uh, in Iran. Uh, I don't think we in the West have perfect visibility uh, of all of that. A lot of it is obscure. But you know it's possible to try to, try to create a debate and to create um, a debate about really what the best outcome will be for, um, for Iran. And there are hardliners who will say, um, uh, some will say we want confrontation. Uh, others will say we're prepared to tough it out and would, pre would prefer to have a nuclear weapon. 
But for others, they will say, actually, is it worth the cost? Uh, is it really worth going to the going to the brink? Wouldn't we be better off having modernizing our economy, um, getting into a proper trade and economic relationship with Europe, which is our main trading uh, trading partner, um, getting access to uh, the technology and the investment that we need to make our energy sector competitive uh, for the next generation? At the moment, uh, the Iranian energy sector is uh, is in is in dire straits because it lacks that outside investment and innovation. Uh, which, uh, which is required. So I think they've got a whole series of, um, of issues and problems. We don't want all of that to be laid at our door either. And uh, their, their government has got to be held accountable by their public for their um, you know, economic lack of performance. But I think that's our, that's our aim. It's, uh, as President Obama used the term, trying to change the calculus um, within Iran – um, of, uh, of whether it's worth pursuing this, this course. And I think that's exactly the right concept. Why does it matter if they have a nuclear uh, weapon? Let, I, I'm being irreverent here because I've heard so many arguments. Potentially Israel has one, has access. Pakistan, India. We look around the world and it's not as uh, unexpected – as we, we, we think, to see a, a country. It's almost as if it's become a political uh, issue rather than a military uh, issue. I think it's potentially both. And I do think that you have to take seriously what people in the region uh, say. So there's a series of things that I think would cause concern if Iran were to actually acquire uh, nuclear weapons. I mean, the first is a general one about the, the sort of international uh, environment in which we're working. It would have, if they get that far, it would have meant that they would have um, uh, flouted all the efforts that uh, the UN and the uh, interna International Atomic a uh, Agency and others have been making to, um, to get them to, uh, to change course. And um, uh, that would not be a good thing for the, the rules-based system which we're trying to uh, create. That's a general point. But I think the more worrying thing is what would happen uh, in the region. I think you have to take seriously what Saudi Arabia, what the other Gulf countries, what others say about this. Uh, we think it's very likely that if Iran uh, were to get a, a nuclear weapon, um, that others uh, in some way or another would follow suit. Exactly. Uh, I don't think you can just imagine that these countries are going to sit back um, and accept a country which they regard as um, acting in a way which is inimical to their interests, just sit back and say, OK, we'll adjust to the new the new situation and we won't arm ourselves uh, accordingly. So there's a great risk of a regional arms race um, as, a, um, as a result of this. And that I think is quite separate from the issue uh, of, uh, of Israel, the situation uh, in Israel over its uh, – whether or not it has uh, nuclear weapons. I mean that's been, been something people have been debating and talking about for, for decades now. That's not a new factor. Um, so I think, I think it would be highly destabilizing. And certainly for, um, for Israel, uh, which is not to um, condone this thought or to encourage it, it is a fact that um, many people in Israel regard um, uh, Iran acquiring nuclear weapons as a potential ex existential threat to Israel, as a threat to the, uh, the very future life and security uh, of the Israeli state. And that is already provoking a debate in Israel about what sort of action they should take. Were they to take military, military action and everything that we're doing at the moment, um, uh, we hope will have the effect of creating a different sort of solution, a negotiated solution to this. But were they to 
um, take military action at some point in the future. That would obviously carry uh, risks of its own um, for, the, uh, for the region uh, and, for, and for everyone that's, uh, that's involved there. In Politico, in the article in Politico, you call for a diplomatic strategy. And um, I was impressed with this because you said the right combination of policies can change the cost-benefit calculation. And that's a very significant argument. But is it possible, mentioning Israel, that this existential threat that you referred to could lead Israel to move us outside of this diplomatic strategy into a different kind of uh, pressure point? I'm sure that that's, that that's possible. But I think everyone at the moment, and including Israel, is focused on the task in hand. And um, you're right. It is, uh, I'm talking about a diplomatic strategy. It's not diplomatic in the sense of being um, polite uh, or mild. Uh, it's diplomatic in the sense I'm talking about politics, I'm talking about pressure, I'm talking about um, economic, financial yes. and political sanctions. So I'm talking about the uh, hard uh, options that are available to us short of uh, actual, actual um, military action. And I think that um, that activity which is going on in the United Nations, which the European Union will add to if there are UN sanctions, the uh, European Union always has been prepared in the past with Iran to go further and to adopt more severe sanctions ourselves. So linked up with the United States, Europe, Japan, some of the other financial centers, I think we can bring real pressure to bear on at least parts of that complicated uh, Iranian system. And I believe that the, you know, that the Israelis would like that to succeed and, uh, uh, and are keen to see, you know, for that to be seen through. So, Nigel, one of the features of Profiles is to ask the guests to select uh, one of their favorite pieces of music. And so I'm hoping that um, we'll be able to find something that you'd enjoy and that uh, would also be an insight into your tastes and interests. I'm going to start with one of the American ones. I've chosen two American and, uh, right. and one, in, one international. I'm going to start with Bob Dylan's Positively Fourth Street. Oh, good. I've chosen two American ones from the period of my uh, musical formation, which is the, 19, the 1960s. I'm proud of having grown up in the 1960s. Uh, I don't think I've become a sort of grumpy old man, but I certainly think that was one of the high points of uh, popular music and, uh, and both for the UK and actually for the US. So I've chosen that. Um, I became a fan of Bob Dylan's um, uh, in the in the mid 1960s as a quite a young uh, schoolboy uh, in the UK. I saw him at the uh, Isle of Wight Festival, and I guess 1969, uh, and I've been an admirer ever since. There's a um, Bob Dylan is of course a uh, an elusive and ambiguous personality. No one quite knows what his uh, songs mean or what he's trying to get at, and I think that ambiguity probably appeals to us Brits. <laughs> That's very nice.
This is Profiles, and our guest today is Nigel Scheinwald. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. I'd like to shift a little bit. We've been talking about Israel, perhaps to the Middle East for a moment. And let me start with your uh, diplomatic mission to Syria and your meetings with uh, President Assad. Yes. Uh, This was another breakthrough in many ways. Um, And and again, you had dialogue with him. And do you think this has been fruitful? Do you think it's been um, uh, something of lasting consequence or – Well, I think it was important to do it. And, um, and that was the view that our, our government uh, took. Uh, I'm afraid there wasn't a breakthrough, but the, but the rationale for doing it was, was clear then. And frankly, it's clear, uh, it's clear today. When I went to see uh, President Assad, it was towards the end of uh, 2006. It had been after the Israel-Lebanon conflict, um, a very damaging uh, conflict and dangerous conflict in the summer of that year. And I wanted to get across to um, President uh, Assad that there was a prospect of a different relationship between um, the West, between Europe and the United States, our other partners, and Syria. You know, were there to be a change of course from, uh, from Syria in certain areas? Uh, and the areas are not very different today um, from, from what they were then. They were uh, the use of Syria by um, some of the terrorist groups that were operating in Iraq, operating against American soldiers, operating against British soldiers, and um, primarily against Iraqis. We wanted to stop uh, Syria being used as a part of the supply chain of individuals and, uh, uh, and, uh, and effort going into, going into Iraq. That was one of the first, um, uh, a key thing. Um, the second thing was uh, the uh, Syrian involvement in Lebanon, um, which uh, was at a slightly different stage then, four, four years ago from where it is today. Uh, nevertheless, that's a key issue for all of us in, uh, in Europe and, and the West. And the third issue, we you know, was the, um, their involvement in the Israel-Arab issue, the Israel-Palestine issue, and where their, where their involvement was um, largely unhelpful because they were uh, really supporting the more extreme elements on the Palestinian side and discouraging those who were trying to get negotiations going with, uh, with Israel. So I was encouraging a different approach which would be reciprocated uh, on the Western side. That's been very slow to emerge. But there was, after my visit, there was an, uh, an immediate um, response in terms of Syria establishing proper diplomatic relations with Iraq and starting a more, uh, a more normal uh, and I would say more more sensible long term relationship between those um, between those two countries. Uh, so that was at least a start. But in other areas, it's been very slow going. The Obama administration now uh, is taking up more, much more direct 
um, contacts with uh, with Syria. There were very few um, at that stage between the United States and the Bush administration in Syria, which was why it was more important for the for, for the UK to be involved. Uh, now there are direct contacts between the US uh, and Syria, and we would like Syria to be involved, you know, in a in a, a comprehensive effort uh, on the Middle East peace process. In addition to there being an Israeli-Palestinian track, we want to see an Israeli. Uh, Syrian track um, uh, um, develop. The key point strategically for us, and it goes back to your question on Iran, is whether Syria finds it comfortable in the long run to be dependent on Iran. And I don't think that's where their national interest is. I think there are a lot of people in Syria who believe that they've become over-dependent uh, on Iran. They would like uh, a more uh, a freer, more autonomous uh, Syrian position. They won't come completely into the Western camp, um, but there's a um, I'm sure that there's, uh, there's scope for Syria to, be, uh, to act in a more independent way. Um, and that's what we've been trying to encourage. Of course, the Middle East peace process springs from this discussion on Syria. The comprehensive peace settlement would call for, in terms of uh, a speech you gave recently, an independent Palestine and a secure Israel. Are these antithetical goals? No, no, they're not. And only a political effort, new negotiations, only that will will ensure that there is mutual security uh, and mutual justice on uh, on both sides. And we haven't got time on our side. This has taken uh, much too long. Uh, This is a situation that I had in mind when I talked earlier about things getting worse as well as some things getting better. This has got much more difficult um, uh, over the past decade or so. There was real promise in the Middle East um, peace process in the uh, the 1990s. Things have got much more difficult um, in the decade which has just passed. There probably wasn't enough international effort in that period to get things moving between the parties. And in the meantime, things don't just stay the way they are. Um, in, you know, I think on both the Palestinian and Israeli sides, the um, prospects for peace um, have, have become more, uh, more difficult, more difficult politically for the leadership on both sides. So this does require political courage on both, on both sides of the uh, equation. And we believe that the, this issue, the uh, creation of a Palestinian state, is one of those transcendent issues in, in foreign policy. It links up to so much else. It, link, it links up to um, how we handle Iran, how we can put pressure on Iran in its own region. It links up to the feeling of grievance in the, uh, in the Muslim world. It affects, as your administration has been saying, it affects your national interests. It affects European uh, interests. It certainly uh, is a matter of great concern to the, to the UK government. So we strongly back the efforts which are being made. I think initially to try to get the Israelis and Palestinians into some proximity talks, indirect talks, because it's so difficult to start with direct negotiations. But actually, it's the direct negotiations which are needed to get to the, um, to get to the heart of the matter. But that two-state solution, it may not be available forever. Um, this has been the, you know, the dream for uh, a number of decades. Uh, we seem to be getting close to it uh, in the 1990s. The basic elements of it have been clear um, since the negotiation, which then President Clinton uh, led in the late 1990s, uh, we know the broad elements, but um, getting over the, the distrust uh, which has really built up on both sides uh, in recent years is going to be very, very hard. And yet it's the key to so many things, it, international terrorism, the it, stability of the region. It will, it will help a number of different things. I mean, by itself, 
you know, if you solved this problem, I'm afraid there still would be international terrorism. Yes, the, you know, the, 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 the causes of that go very, very deep and um, we can't expect sort of overnight, uh, overnight answers. But um, uh, you're absolutely right that if, this, if we were to make progress on this, it would, um, it would certainly have a big effect on our image, on your image in the world as Americans. Uh, it, would, uh, it would show that we're prepared to tackle these deep-seated problems and not, uh, not in any sense show double standards or a lack of resolve um, uh, on an issue which has been festering for such a long time. It would have an impact on... Muslim attitudes, it would have an, in, an impact on, uh, on Iran and others in the region who are trying to do harm. You said it was not just a two-state solution, but a 23-state solution because it would draw in the Arab League. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, that's the prize for Israel. It's not just sorting things out with their immediate neighbor, but it's actually coming to a, uh, a normal, peaceful prosperous relationship with the rest of the Arab world. So uh, that's why we talk, in, we talk in those terms about the prize for Israel being the normalization of its relations with all its neighbors. Um, and you need to bring their interests into this as well, because having this disagreement around for all these years um, has been uh, effort that they themselves could have put into different parts of their own society and their economies and their foreign policy, rather than um, uh, investing it all in this very, very difficult issue. And of course, there's a parallel issue, and that is support for the Palestinian state, development of the Palestinian state. And that presumably could be also something that needs a priority attention. It does. It needs to go in parallel with the, with the political effort, which is going in at the moment from the, uh, the president, President Obama, from George Mitchell, the American special envoy. But in parallel, um, on the economic side, it's very, very important to try and get economic development moving in the uh, West Bank um, of, uh, of Palestine and to help the Palestinian institutions themselves to strengthen and develop so that if there is a successful negotiation in the future, you've got institutions in place which can bear the burden of running, uh, of running a, Palestinian, a Palestinian state. And the Palestinian prime minister, Salam Fayyad, um, has done a great deal in this regard, economically and institution building uh, over the past couple of years and deserves a great deal of credit for it, despite the very uh, unpromising political environment. Um, so, Nigel, uh, one of the characteristics of profiles is to ask our guests, as you know, for musical interludes. And I wonder if you would make a selection for us that's an appropriate one. Uh, Light My Fire by the, by the Doors. And that's a, a group that I followed in the, uh, the late 1960s. I grew up in the 1960s and uh, enjoyed that sort of music enormously. I saw The Doors in a doubleheader with the Jefferson Airplane in London uh, in 1968. And when I was at number 10, uh, Downing Street, over uh, recent years, uh, I had the opening bars of Light My Fire as my ringtone. So uh, often found when we were in uh, embarrassing and sometimes delicate situations <laughs> in uh, the Middle East and around the world, uh, my phone would go off and it would be uh, those opening bars and, uh, and Jim Morrison's voice coming out. So the doors went with me. Um, I don't have it anymore, I'm afraid. My phone's not quite as advanced as it was then. But uh, certainly the, the, the doors will be one of my choices. If I was to say to you, girl, we could 
get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. The time to hesitate is through. No time to wallow in the mire. Try now we can only lose, and our love become a funeral pyre. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. This is Profiles, and our guest today is Sir Nigel Scheinwald. Sir Nigel. I'd like to talk a little bit with you about um, some other world issues. Afghanistan is on very much uh, on all of our minds. And uh, the United Kingdom, of course, has a deep investment. I think 10,000 troops are currently in Afghanistan, and it's probably one of the largest um, groups of uh, support that um, is engaged in the war in uh, Afghanistan. No, it is. Obviously, the largest military contribution comes from the United States, but we are by far the second largest. We have over 10,000 troops in Afghanistan, um, and the other European countries are significantly um, lower than that in the, you know, um, in the three to 2,000 sort of uh, mark. So we have invested a lot of effort. More than that, we have been involved over the past uh, four years um, in one of the most difficult areas of Afghanistan, in the south of Afghanistan, where a lot of the toughest fighting has been. And very sadly, um, you know, we've lost proportionately uh, more people than any of the um, contributors uh, over, the, over the last year or so. So um, we're very involved. Um, we, we mourn those, uh, those losses, but we're very, very determined to see this to a successful uh, conclusion. We've put in extra, uh, extra troops, as the United States and other allies uh, have done, but we don't believe that ultimately it will be, it will be a military victory uh, alone that we're looking for. What we're looking for, actually, is to find a way to solve this politically. That's going to be the only way um, that we can bring an end to an insurgency, is to win over hearts and minds and find a way of bringing uh, the mass of the Taliban uh, over into mainstream economics and mainstream uh, politics. Uh, And the Taliban aren't a monolithic group. They're not all a a monolithic group with a single ideological vision. Uh, Far from it. Um, The vast majority of the foot soldiers are people who come across because they're paid a certain amount of money to do do a job. We need to find a way of reintegrating them uh, within normal Afghan society. That's going to require some uh, incentives, both politically uh, and economically. And then ultimately, there's the prize and the opportunity of trying to reach um, uh, an agreement with the more senior members of the the Taliban. And we need to start preparing for that now, thinking about that now. Of course, um, uh, it would be uh, better if our uh, military uh, campaign uh, created a mood of greater defensiveness on the Taliban side. And we think that's starting already with the initiatives which have taken place in the last couple of months in the south of Afghanistan. But we need to think the whole time about this being an insurgency. Uh, And dealing with an insurgency, you've got to deal with it using military, political, and economic means combined. You can't just do it using our brave soldiers uh, in the field. You've got to build up institutions as well, civil society, judges, courts, etc. Absolutely. You need to do that both at the national level and lower down in Afghanistan. We can't pretend. Afghanistan is still a very, very poor and feudal 
in many ways, feudal um, society. And um, we're not going to be able to build up a sophisticated, unitary, centralized state in Afghanistan. That would go against the grain of Afghan society, which is tribal and which is um, decentralized. So, of course, we need to look at the support around President Karzai, um, at the institutions of central government. But just as importantly, we need to think about the provincial governors, the district governors, the people um, down the chain who actually are, uh, are exercising a lot of local authority um, and, and, and work, as I say, with the grain uh, of Afghan politics and, uh, and society. But building up some strength, some capacity, some, uh, some ability to deal with this really phenomenal set of problems, that's absolutely essential. And that will change what is currently a weak state into possibly a somewhat stronger state. A somewhat stronger state is a perfectly reasonable way of putting it. But I don't think we can uh, expect um, you know, to create Jeffersonian democracy no. or um, a Westminster style of, um, of democracy or uh, very, very high levels of Western style development. It's got to be enough to prevent a vacuum recurring from which um, terrorists can once again launch uh, plots against us. That's got to be our objective. We've got to be focused on the absolute um, minimum requirement, which is that, uh, that Afghanistan shouldn't be a launch pad again for, for terrorism. For that to happen, there needs to be uh, a functioning Afghan uh, government and state. And there needs to be a sense of the Afghan people not wanting the Taliban back and uh, having the resilience to repel future attempts by them or al-Qaeda to reinsert themselves into, uh, into the heart of Afghanistan. That's our strategic requirement for the United States, for the other NATO countries. Of course, you cannot separate Afghanistan from Pakistan. No, and I think that's been one of the most effective parts of the, mm -hmm. the, strate the strategic review which, um, which the Obama administration undertook uh, last year. Uh, you can't see them as separated. You, sh you can't see them as exactly the same either. I mean, Pakistan is a, is a country of 170, 180 million uh, people compared with 25 or 30 million in Afghanistan. Uh, it's of huge strategic uh, importance in its own right uh, to Britain, to America, to our, to our partners. In a way, Pakistan is the longer-term strategic prize. And we are working very closely with the Pakistan uh, authorities, helping their... Uh, their democracy and their democratic institutions to take hold, helping them in their own fight, which has uh, increased against militancy and extremism uh, in Pakistan. But I, I think absolutely you've got to look at the two things together. If it's uh, an unstable um, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan will be affected. If it's an unstable um, Pakistan, Afghanistan won't be um, secure and stable. So you need to look at the two things together. Is it different from Iraq? Oh, yes. It's different. It's different from Iraq in all sorts of ways. It's a different, a fundamentally different society. Uh, it's a different feel in terms of the international community. The international community uh, is very, very united and uh, committed to dealing with uh, the problems of Afghanistan and supporting the Afghanistan government. You've got the authority of the United Nations involved. You've got the UN's uh, economic and political arms uh, involved. You don't have a divided international community uh, as, we did, um, as we did over Iraq. Um, that doesn't mean the situation on the ground is easy. It's anything but uh, as we confront uh, um, people who are prepared to use the most extreme violence uh, in, pursuit of their, in pursuit of their objectives. A few comments on another of your great interests, the whole question of climate change and global warming as one of your crucial interests. 
and, and long term, it's yes. it's um, it's as big a threat as anything that we're um, that we're facing. It's very yeah. difficult to balance out which is more important: the threat from climate change or the threat from terrorism. Right. And they're different ways. They're both really really serious. Mm-hmm. But it's a classic example of something which involves huge economic and societal change. If we're going to deal with this, we need a change of mindset in our business communities, among individuals and at legislative level. And there has been that change uh, in Europe over the past 20 years. Uh, Europe now has legislation in place uh, which really does bear down on uh, carbon emissions and will deal over the next decades um, pretty effectively with harmful climate change and is encouraging uh, the uh, alternative energy uh, sources which we which we need in a low carbon economy of the future, and that debate is going on here in this uh, in this country. Uh, it's hugely important that the United States is the world's largest economy and the world's uh, second largest uh, emitter. Um, that the United States also is a wholehearted participant in those international uh, negotiations, and we accept that the. Rules which we um, create have to be binding on India and China uh, as well. We can't have a deal which is asymmetrical and which imposes obligations only on the uh, only on the United States and uh, and Europe and doesn't pull in uh, the emerging emerging countries as well. And at the same time, of course, we have to recognise they are at a different stage of their economic development. Some allowance has to be made for that, um, but there can't be any sense that any particular parts of the world. Um, get off scot-free while the rest of us are constrained. I'd like to talk a little bit about the election of course. in Britain. It's nothing compared to the United States' <laughs> two-year marathon uh, for a political campaign. I guess it's a short campaign. It was announced and it will be over within four weeks, right? Exactly. It's a, it's a month-long uh, – it's not as though the um, the starting gun – uh, went up on the uh, went off on the sixth of April, and no one had been talking about the election before. We'd had a, um, a sort of pre-electoral period, but actual campaigning is um, confined um, to that uh, to that four-week period. So that's uh, um, for those who have fatigue uh, after the very long uh, American uh, election campaigns. Um, will get some respite in the British uh, electoral system. And TV debates are now part of the whole process, right? Yeah, we, we haven't had them. Um, America's had them for 50 years. We haven't had them in the UK. During this campaign, we've got three. We've got one on domestic policy, one on the economy and one on international uh, affairs. And that will really change things. And I think that you know, it's going to be very difficult after, after this experience uh, not to keep this for future, for future elections. So it's, right. a, it's going to be an important part of British campaigning in the future. Right. I read a piece of yours which is very dramatic called The Log – and it's a very vivid description of um, an evening when you were walking in as a young person near a railway track and some people put some logs or a large log onto the railway track and you were perturbed by this and ran off because a train was coming which you knew would be coming soon. You ran off to find help because you couldn't lift the log yourself. So you found people, removed the log, and the train comes bounding across. It's a remarkable moment. It's one of those um, historic events in my thinking. 
Are you still removing logs from railway tracks? <laughs> well, it was a bit of fiction, and I'm amazed at your research because I think I, I, think I must have written that in a, an English class when I was yes, about twelve. Was, uh, when I was about twelve, and I certainly haven't reread it for you know for, for many many decades. Um, so it's interesting having it having it um, brought back to life. Well, fiction but, uh, is sometimes reality. Yeah, that's right. No, 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 absolutely. Well, life often follows art, but um, yes, well, I think you are trying to remove logs and log jams. That's the that's the job of public servants and uh, and diplomats. Um, and that's ultimately what negotiations are about. I mean, yes. every negotiation has its has one or more um, log jams, and it's our job to try to uh, to remove them um, and to try to resolve things in a responsible and peaceful way. Well, that's why I thought it was such an appropriate uh, appropriate piece, because in fact, so many things involving politics uh, are concerned with log jams. Whether it's university politics local politics, national politics, or international politics. I think most of our discussion today has really dealt with logjams in one form or another. So, Sir Nigel, thank you very much. Uh, we've been speaking today with Sir Nigel Scheinwald, the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles. Thank you for listening. Sir Nigel, as we fade out, what's your final piece of music? My final piece of music is from another area completely. Um, I'm a sucker for the sort of uh, operatic arias. I don't regard myself as an operatic, uh, an operatic fanatic, but I, um, I love powerful uh, operatic arias. So I'm choosing the uh, aria from La Wally and, uh, if possible, sung by Maria Callas. Oh, we'll do our best to do that. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you uh, with us today. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.